1852, Frederick Douglass, an escaped slave who became at that time America's most famous abolitionist orator, and most importantly, a fierce Christian, he was asked by the Ladies' Anti-Slavery Society of Rochester to be their honored speaker for the 4th of July. And Douglas gave here at this event what is probably his most well-known speech. What to the slave is the 4th of July? The talk was to be held in Rochester's newly opened Corinthian Hall, soaring ceilings, chandeliers, the most prestigious of venues. As the hour drew near, the nearly 600 attendees, mostly white, filled the hall. Though the event was originally scheduled for the community's 4th uh, of July celebration on the 4th itself, Douglas insisted on giving his address the following day, July 5th. And in doing so, he was identifying with black Americans who, in response to the tradition of holding slave auctions on July 4th, refused at that time to celebrate that day. As he began his speech, he spoke of the day as the birthday of your national independence and of your political freedom. He described it in glowing terms as their Passover, a day that carries your minds back to the act of your great deliverance. One can almost imagine the glow of the audience as they listened to him speaking these words. But the perceptive listener would hear something additional. Even as Douglas honored the founding of America, he nonetheless distanced himself from it. Your independence, your freedom, your deliverance, your fathers, your nation, a subtle rebuke lay beneath the surface of his words. And then he erupted. Fellow citizens, pardon me, allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I, or those I represent, to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in the Declaration of Independence extended to us? I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought life and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice. I must mourn. The America which was celebrated on this day Douglas says, was their America, not his. An America enjoyed at the expense of those like Douglas. Though the crowd themselves were abolitionists, Douglas nonetheless called into question some of their most cherished beliefs, declaring their vision of an equally just and free America to be nothing more than a fiction refuted by its continued approval of slavery. And so he continued, he said, what to the American, what to the American slave is your 4th of July? 
I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is a consistent victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, hollow mockery, mere bombast and hypocrisy, a thin veil to cover up the crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There is not a nation on earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this hour. I was recently reading that speech not too long ago, just a few weeks ago, and it hit me, comparing this with the book of, of, of Revelation, what Frederick Douglass is doing here, again, during the 18, giving this in 1852, during the time when slavery still existed in America, He's looking at the United States as it was celebrated on that day, and he's doing something kind of apocalyptic, just like we see being done in the book of Revelation. He is unveiling the reality of the nation as it actually exists, actually existed, even beyond the appearances that some people wanted to hold up. And so too today in our passage, in Revelation 13, we have something quite similar going on. We have an unmasking of the demonic power that lays behind the state, here in this passage called the beast. We see that the state is Satan's henchman in his continued attack against the church. And we see the state, like Douglas does, unveiling the reality of his America at that time, we see Revelation unveiling the reality of the state for us. Now, as we've been going through the book, as we've been noting, each section of the book does something of what we might call a recapitulation. There is a parallelism that runs throughout the book, where the different sections of the book run us through a repeated series from Jesus' ascension to Jesus' second coming. And so we saw this with the seals and the trumpets, and eventually we'll see it with the bowls, where we get this big overview picture of God's judgment across the era from the ascension of Christ to the second coming. And so too, get this, in Revelation 12 through 15, 4, we will get another parallel recapitulation of the events coming from the ascension, chapter 12, leading up to the second coming, the final harvest. We saw the ascension in 12, right? The, 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 the Messiah child who is caught up. And in chapter 14 and 15, we get the final harvest, God gathering his people and the winepress of judgment. And so here too, we get a recapitulation of this period of the church age from the ascension to the second coming. But what's unique in this section, what this section is uniquely giving to us, is it's giving us profiles of the characters in this cosmic conflict. It's showing us the characters that are present within the other sections, maybe just assumed, but now it's bringing them out. We saw the dragon in chapter 12, and now in today's passage, we get a profile of the first beast. And in chapter 11, verse 7, the section on the two witnesses, there was just this quick mention that a beast who arises from the abyss will come and he will conquer the two witnesses representing the church. But we're not told anything else about him. He just shows up, and we're kind of left to wonder, who is this beast? He was never mentioned before. It's our first mention of the beast. And if you don't know anything about Revelation, your first time reading it, you're kind of like, what was that? Well, now we come to chapter 13, and we get a more detailed profile of that beast that was conquering and killing and attacking the church. 
Now, what is the beast? What does the beast represent? Look at me at the introduction to the beast in verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with, notice here, ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. So we get ten horns, which represents ten being the fullness of power. Horns in apocalyptic literature representing power with ten diadems on them representing royalty. And then seven heads, this idea of complete rule, because as we get to chapter 17, uh, chapter 17 is going to tell us that these ten heads and these, or these seven heads and these ten horns are to be identified as kings, chapter 17 tells us. Continuing in verse 2, we see that the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Now, this is alluding to Daniel 7, and in Daniel 7, we get a presentation of four beasts. A lion, a bear, a leopard, and then this kind of crazy monster one. And these represent kingdoms in Daniel. It represents Babylon and, and Medo-Persia and Greece and then finally Rome. And so what, what John is doing here is he's taking all of those and he's depicting the beast here as a kingdom. It's fitting with Daniel's picture of beasts as kingdoms. But now it's like a super monster. He's like joining all of them together to create the monster of all monsters. Continuing in verse 2, the second half. And to it, the beast, the dragon gave his power and his, notice, throne and great authority. Throne, the idea of rulership. In other words, what we're talking about here with the beast is what we might call the empire, or the state, its government, embodying it in its political leaders, or its, its military arm, the militarized state. We're talking about all those things kind of joined together. Hereafter, I'm just going to call it state, but when I say state, I mean sort of all of those things. Now, the original manifestation, the original sort of referent of this state in Revelation 13, would have been Rome in the first century. That's who he's writing to, his people in the first century. And in chapter 17, we see this because the beast is also said to be on seven hills. And seven hills is an allusion to Rome. But I would argue that this, this image of the beast is not meant to be exhausted by first century Rome. Like, it's just first century Rome and we're done. Rather, it represents the various human kingdoms across the entire church age. It's, it's now something bigger than Rome. Not only is this beast the fourth beast from Daniel 7, but as we saw, it's bringing all the beasts together. It's all the kingdoms. It's bigger than Rome. And as we saw, this is a vision for throughout the church age. He's going to be given authority in verse 5 for 42 months. This three and a half years, which we see, we've seen elsewhere, is symbolic for the entire church age. And this is between the ascension and the second coming, as we saw. Between chapter 12, ascension, and second coming, 14 and 15. So 13 is the era we are living in now. The beast is now. And so you might, again, the first application of the beast would be first century Rome. But the beast, we might also say, was Hitler. It was Napoleon. It was Soviet Russia. It was ISIS. It's communist China. And to greater or lesser degrees, get this, it's any country, including the United States. 
Now, what's important to realize is that the dragon is going to wage his war through the beast. Look at chapter 12, verse 17 with me. Then the dragon, representing Satan here, became furious with the woman, representing the church community, and he went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, believers, those who keep the commandments of God, hold fast to the testimony of Jesus, and he stood on the sand of the sea. And we're kind of left wondering, how is the dragon going to wage his war? He's been thwarted and thwarted and thwarted, but he continues to wage his war. And now in 13, we see how. The beast, as, as the dragon stands on the sea, on the seashore, the sand of the sea, the beast rises out of the sea. Now, the sea in the Hebrew mind in the, in the Old Testament would have represented a place of chaos, the origin of evil. But also here, it shows that the beast is the spawn of Satan. He is Satan's henchman. He is, the, he is the, 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 this monstrous minion of the devil. And the beast, as we saw, receives power from the dragon. He exercises the dragon's authority, verse 2 and verse 4, and throughout the passage. It has ten horns and seven heads and is arrayed with diadems just like the dragon was. The dragon also had ten horns and seven heads and had diadems. In other words, it's, it's meant to show, it's meant to expose the satanic influence behind the state. The beast, the state, is closely identified with the dragon. And so now as we work through the rest of the passage, as we, as we were to look at the structure, we would see that the, the passage gives us three primary characteristics of the beast that I want to show you. And the first is this, that the beast is seemingly invincible. He's perceived as invincible. You'll see that he's healed from this mortal wound. In verse 3, one of its heads, kings, in other words, seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. Now, this could potentially be referring to Nero's death. After Nero's death, there was sort of this time of turmoil where there was a bunch of kings that kind of came in quick succession and the empire seemed to be very unstable, but then uh, Vespasian came in and solidified the emperor. And that might be the illusion here, that the, the kind of the, the emperor looked like he was going to fall, but then someone came in and it healed from the wound, and the empire is still standing. But regardless of whether that's the background, it obviously symbolically conveys this, that there is a perceived invincibility to the empire. And this is something that would not be unique to the first century. We see this in states and governments across church history where they present themselves and they are, are, are seen to be invincible. These are the power structures of humanity. You'll also notice, though, that John is casting the beast here as a parody of Jesus. The beast, as the, as the ruler, as the state, the empire, is a parody of Christ, the true king. He's, the dragon is, the dragon, Satan, gives him authority. Just as remember in chapter 4 and 5, the one seated on the throne gives the scroll, gives authority to the lamb, who then rules over all creation. And so the dragon, in his parody and his counterfeit, gives authority to his king, the beast. We also see a parody of Jesus' death and resurrection. In 13.3, it says that I saw one of his heads, and it, would, it could literally be translated this way, as though it had been slain. What does that language remind us of? It reminds us of chapter 5, verse 6, where we saw a land standing, same language, as though it had been slain. 
Both are as though they had been slain. And as the beast's mortal wound is healed, so that is a parody of Jesus' resurrection. It's mimicking Christ. And it has authority over all peoples, you'll notice. In chapter 3, verse 7, it's given rule over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Just like Jesus, in chapter 5, is said to redeem a people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And the beast's followers, as we'll see in the next section, they are marked with the mark of the beast. They are marked with the beast's name on their forehead, just as in chapter 14, Christ's people are sealed with his name on their forehead. We get a counterfeit Christ, in other words. And as the counterfeit Christ, then it's unsurprising that he receives the people's worship instead of Christ. He's a counterfeit object of worship. Look at verse 4. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority. Or sorry, let me back up to halfway verse 3. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. They marvel at his invincibility. And they worshipped the dragon as well, for he had given the authority to the beast. They worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who can, who can fight against it? He's seemingly invincible. They worshiped the beast for his invincibility. And by implication, at least spiritually speaking, this essentially involves worshiping the dragon, Satan, who stands behind him. And this makes sense, right? Because like Adam, instead of wanting to submit to God, we as humans would rather be God. And so when we reject the worship of the true God, the state becomes a ready alternative a prime expression of our own human collective power. The second thing we see about the beast is that he utters blasphemies. And on account of then his seemingly invincibility, he's going to utter blasphemies. He's going to say haughty things about himself. I'm invincible. Verse 5 and 6. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, literally his temple, that is those who dwell in heaven. Or not his temple, his tabernacle, sorry. Blaspheming here would probably be the empire's sort of claims for itself. It's, it's claiming to have like a divine status where emperors took on titles like Lord and they called themselves the Son of God and the Savior. And when he blasphemes, it says, functionally speaking, this is blaspheming against God then. It's blaspheming against, as we said, literally God's tabernacle. Against, again, the church is symbolically portrayed as the place of God's presence, his temple, his tabernacle, or his, his heaven dwellers as opposed to the earth dwellers. And so the, so the beast, he receives the worship that he calls for. Halfway through verse 7 with me, And the authority was given over every tribe and people and language and nation, Verse 8, and all who dwell on earth will worship the beast. That is, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And so the empire, in other words, demands absolute allegiance and worship. And thus, the beast wars against, it persecutes all who refuse to give it that worship and allegiance. Look at verse 7 now that we skipped over. It was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. 
And remember, this is the imagery used here is that of a monster, beast, or you might, I like to say monster. This is a terrifying image. This is meant to be terrifying. This is the enemy of the church. This is the one coming after the church. It's depicted as a monster coming to conquer, to fight against the church. And so what is the called for response? Look at verse 9 with me. If anyone has an ear, let him hear, wake up, heed this message. The same words used to speak to the church at the beginning of the book. Verse 10, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. In other words, Christians who remain faithful under these conditions should expect to suffer. This is what is going to happen. And so what is required of us? Here is the call. It is for the endurance, or you could translate it patience, patient endurance as it's translated elsewhere. Here is the call for patient endurance and the faith of the saints. In other words, the message of this passage is this. We could summarize it this way. God's saints must patiently endure amidst the state's threat of deception and hostility. God's saints must patiently endure amidst the state's threat of deception and hostility. On the one hand, deception, because because we we are attracted to the state's power and its apparent invincibility. And so there's a call for this sort of idolatrous allegiance and worship of the state, state that we have to resist. But then hostility, because if we refuse to do that, if we remain faithful, we need strength to persevere through the backlash, through the beast's persecution. And so God's saints must patiently endure through that threat of deception and hostility brought on by the state. And as you think about how this would come to bear then on the seven churches at the beginning of the book, we saw the seven churches, some of them being more or less faithful, struggling with different things. There were some churches that were unfaithful and they would need, they would hear this message and need to be rebuked to stop capitulating to the beast. Stop capitulating to society's pressures to participate in its idolatry. On the other hand, those churches, those believers that were faithful, they were refusing to participate in the emperor worship. They need to be encouraged to patiently endure, to keep resisting and persevering despite the backlash and persecution. But here's the thing. In light of the whole book, we're not told just to persevere as in to just grit our teeth through it. No, we're told to persevere in view of our hope. You see, even this language of beast, we saw that the, this idea of beast, this imagery, it conveys this idea of monstrous and terrifying. Yes, that is there. But also the word beast is also a word that means animal. It's a created thing. It's not God. God owns it. God made it. And one day, Christ will come and he will make claim on his absolute authority over all things, including that measly beast. The Messiah will unmask the monster, exposing the beast's claim to absolute authority as nothing more than a sham. The beast's demand for our worship and allegiance is fraudulent. 
When Christ returns, he will destroy the beast, as chapter 19 will eventually show us, and Jesus' present reign will then be fully brought to bear on his creation. And so again, we're not told just to persevere for persevering sake, like, sorry, this is just the way it is. The sooner you kind of learn to deal with it, the better. No, we're told to persevere because of our hope. And knowing that suffering, as we've already seen, is our path, to glory for those who remain faithful. And so now as we, as we think about the message of this, of this passage, I want to help us to try to connect this to a broader theology of the state as we think about trying to bring this to bear and what this looks like for us in our own context. And the first reflection that I want to offer is that this helps expose the, the satanic influence that can stand behind the state. Remember, the, 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 this is the, dra- the dragon's henchmen here. The dragon is the one who brings us out of the sea. It's the one who the dragon gives his authority to. And so this is a call for us then to be attuned to the satanic influence and the spiritual battle that exists beneath the surface of institutions like the state to be attuned to the effects of evil embedded in systems and power structures. Like Frederick Frederick Douglass, I think it's a great example of what he was doing, exposing reality for what it truly is, despite sort of the, the, the facade that was happening. We too want to practice a, Revel, a Revelation 13 apocalyptic type outlook, looking beneath the surface to see the true reality of things. We are attuned to the way the state, even our own, can act in beastly ways. And now the state was obviously the most powerful institution in John's day, and so it was the most fitting category for this idea of a beast, right? But I think we can also apply the principle of this passage more broadly, that the beast is not merely the state, of course it is that, but potentially other institutions that exert powerful, potentially anti-God influence on society. And so think, for example, this is just some examples. I'm sure there's more, but for example, multinational corporations, big tech, Hollywood, political interest groups, commercialism, the financial elite in the world, and we might say even global religious institutions, those that deny the gospel, even Christian, quote-unquote, churches. You see, the book of Revelation wants us not merely to read its apocalypse accurately, but even more importantly, Revelation wants to teach us to read the world apocalyptically, to see reality unveiled, as we've titled this series, to increasingly perceive the true spirituality behind the things that we see in this world. And specifically here, it wants to jolt us into recognizing the battle that we're in. It wants us to remember that there's a dragon that stands behind this world that we see so that we can live with a realization of what is actually at stake in our Christian lives. There's a war happening. But what about passages like 
Romans 13. Romans 13 talks about the church as a servant, okay, or we could translate it a minister. The, the, the state is a minister of God, meant for humanity's good, to bring order to society, to reward the good, to punish the evil, as the passage says, and as, as believers were called then to honor and to submit to the government. And so let's be clear. Obviously, we're not saying that government is inherently evil. Remember, government is an institution that was created by God for humanity's good. And when Christ comes, he will exercise a most perfect government. If government was inherently bad, then Jesus would have come as an anarchist, not a king. And so we need a view of the state that involves both Romans 13 and Revelation 13. The state as both a minister of good but at times potentially even mixed in a monster. The state is both a monster and a minister. The state, therefore, is an expression of God's common grace to humanity, while at the same time and in different ways, something that Satan infects against God's purposes. And so now when we think of the beast... We probably, most of us, when you read a passage like this, or when we've heard things about it, we probably think of the beast in terms of describing some horrible totalitarian regime. And certainly that would be a fitting description of a beast, of a beastly state, right? But remember, although Rome was hated by many of its subjects, it was also loved by many of its subjects due to the Pax Romana, as it's called, due to the peace and the prosperity that Rome brought its subjects and its citizens. In other words, this label beast here in the book of Revelation, applied originally to Rome, can apply not only to totally oppressive regimes, but even, even more, or even if not more so, it can actually apply to even relatively good nations, ones that the citizens like, like Rome, like the U.S. It's a mix of monster and minister. In other words, this is a fitting category that we ought to be willing to examine our own nation against. As one commentator says, the worship of rulers as gods is less overt in Western culture today than it was in the ancient world. Even so, in so-called secular states, governments have no qualms exploiting religious establishments in the interest of civic loyalty and cultural conformity. And in addition, we shouldn't be so naive as to assume that America doesn't have its hands in its own fair share of evil, even today. Now, admittedly, associating the United States, at least to some degree, with the beast may require a bit of a reframing for some of us. It's probably more common for folks to correlate the United States with passages about Israel, And so we apply passages like this to the United States, uh, 2 Corinthians 7.14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven and heal their land. We've all heard that, right? Okay, that's talking about Israel, not the United States. Or politicians will say of the United States, like in in their addresses and such, they'll say that, that we are the light of the world, a city set on a hill, which is actually a passage that's referring to the church. We can sometimes correlate the United States with God's unique people in the Bible. And so we apply the position of God's covenant people to the United States. 
when actually, biblically speaking, we should correlate God's covenant people today, not with the nation, not with any nation, but with the church. The church is is the continuation, the present-day expression of that covenant people. And we should actually equate any world nation, including the United States, with what the Bible calls Babylon, the place of exile. The church is called exiles. Or here in Revelation 13, Rome, which is depicted as Babylon. These would be the proper biblical theological categories for thinking about the nation and the church. Now, why does any of this matter whether or not we give our allegiance to the state? Isn't the state just a spiritual people, just concerned with quote-unquote spiritual things? Isn't Jesus' kingdom, as he said, not of this world? Why then does Revelation 13 depict a conflict between our allegiance to these two kingdoms? Why, why would it even matter? Like, Where's the conflict coming from? Aren't they on two different planes, talking about two different things? spiritual and earthly, and I would say that this is based on a misunderstanding. When we say that Jesus is king, let's be clear, this isn't some figure of speech merely describing a spiritual reality. It's not a metaphor. Jesus is king is not a metaphor. No, when Revelation 1-5, for example, opened the book by saying Jesus is the ruler of the kings on earth, it actually meant it. Jesus doesn't merely reign over our hearts, as sometimes we say. Of course, he does that, but more. No, Jesus is right now ruling over the entire earth. All authority is rightfully Jesus's. And so any claims by anyone else to absolute authority are illegitimate. All earthly authorities are only to exist in subordination to Christ. Abraham Kuyper, uh, who hopefully you're familiar with, but maybe some of you aren't, look him up if you're not. Abraham Kuyper was a theologian who turned prime minister of the Netherlands in the early 20th century. And he has a famous quote, which you, you probably heard this. He says, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Every aspect of human existence, Jesus says, I own that. And people like to quote this all the time. But Abraham Kuyper, if you know him and you know his theology, he meant that as a political statement. There is nothing out of bounds over which Christ's authority rests. Everything in this world ought to be subordinated to the kingship of Christ. That is a political statement. And as Daniel 2 says, one day Jesus will judge all other kingdoms. He will replace them with his own. And I don't know about you, but that too is a political, earthly proposition if I've ever heard one. So to give absolute authority, sorry, to give absolute allegiance, hear me carefully, to give absolute allegiance to the state, to swear to the state our unqualified loyalty is idolatry. For the Christian, nothing gets loyalty over Christ. And the early church understood this. They understood that to say Jesus is Lord meant that also Caesar is not. So much so that they were willing to die for it, that they were willing to go to the Colosseum for it. Remember, Jesus was executed under the charges of being a revolutionary. 
of being a threat to the empire, of, of putting himself up as a king. Now, of course, he wasn't a revolutionary or a threat in the way they accused him of. Uh, he, he, wasn't, uh, he wasn't trying to take over the world by violence or coercion, but he certainly did claim to be the Messiah king. That was true. And therefore, one whose authority did very much challenge Rome's. He had authority over Rome. And in this sense, we too are revolutionaries. Peaceable ones, ones who are actually the state's best sort of citizens. Citizens who submit to and, and we honor our governing authorities to the greatest extent possible, even laying down our rights. But who nonetheless, at the most foundational level, we direct our allegiance elsewhere. And we refuse to acquiesce when called into complicity. And so in a paradoxical fashion, we are simultaneously both the very best, the most civil, and yet the most dangerous sort of citizen. And we need to be aware that the state has an interest in demanding and fostering our allegiance. Think about, for example, the way that they teach history or, or our civic rituals and our holidays. Now again, don't mishear me. We, of course, are called to be good and, where appropriate, loyal citizens. And as well, we are called to show honor and appreciation and thanksgiving to the state. First Peter 2 commands this, Romans 13 commands this. And so again, we need a both-and view here. But the point is nonetheless that a passage like this, like Revelation 13, drives us that we ought to be on guard we ought to practice an apocalyptic, a critical outlook, having something of like an x-ray vision to see into the true reality of what's going on. To be on guard against any sort of messaging or civic rituals that would seek to infatuate or intoxicate us. And so let's be clear, the state definitely does have an interest in us not exercising this sort of discernment. That would be good for them. Just this week, I received a mass text from what will remain an unnamed politician asking me to support their educational agenda of promoting the false doctrine of American exceptionalism in our schools. Or even just a few days before that, I saw a tweet from another who will remain unnamed politician who is downplaying America's past with racism in order to describe our country as this superlatively just, righteous, and inclusive nation, which is not at all true of our past. And even now, we've got to be clear, we're still a very sinful nation. Or just think of politicians and their political parties, to be clear, on both sides, who always cast themselves as entirely faultless and unwavering champions of the good. Now, why do folks speak that way? Well, who is like the beast, uttering haughty and blasphemous words? Let's not be so naive to the state's interest. And so the final call here in all of this is that God's saints, again, God's saints must patiently endure amidst the state's threat of deception and hostility. We must patiently endure amidst the state's threat of deception and hostility. But here's the thing. Even as the beast is said in verse 7, it said that it's allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. That even as the beast, when we are faithful, it will come for us. We're not promised here any sort of physical protection. We're not promised economic protection. When the book promises that we're sealed, 
It's talking about our perseverance, our spiritual security. But even when the beast conquers us, it's in being conquered, as we've seen, that we ourselves conquer the beast. Because we remain faithful unto death. Even as chapter 12, 11 says that we conquer Satan, the dragon, by the blood of the lamb, by not loving our lives even unto death. And the book of Revelation depicts everyone sort of in principle as a martyr. Now, we obviously know that not every believer will be martyred. But in principle, in our hearts, we've already committed to that trajectory. Nothing is going to compromise our faithfulness to the lamb. And even as we are conquered and we are oppressed, it's by receiving that repression and remaining faithful, that's how we conquer, just as Jesus conquered himself by dying. And as we come now to the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that the only reason this is possible, again, it's our hope in Christ, and that hope is secured as we are those who have been guarded, those who have been sealed by Jesus, as verse 8 says, we have our name written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Those who don't fall prey to the worship of the beast, those who don't give absolute allegiance to the beast, how is that so? Because God, from the very foundation of the world in his predetermined plan, in his grace, has placed our name securely in his book as those the Lamb would die to save. That Jesus on the cross, he bore the sins of all those who would eventually trust in him. And if you're here, a believer today, that is the glorious truth of this passage. As we stare the beast dead in the face, we say, you have no authority over me. Christ has redeemed me, and he has sealed me as a worshiper of him.